And I give a lecture. Uh, it's called uh, Tips About How to Become a Rhinoplastic Surgeon. And I say become obsessive first. Yeah. Keep reading. Keep looking at your results again and again and again. Keep thinking about it. And you just have to love it passionately. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. In the month of July, we are interviewing the European Masters, and this is very kindly brought to us by Suta Medical, the guys who make these very cool uh, bipolar forceps and all sorts of ENT and facial plastic surgery instruments in Germany. And my guest tonight is the first time we're interviewing something, someone from the United Kingdom, and it's a great honor for me to invite Prof. Hesham Saleh here. Hesham, welcome. Thank you so much, Cameron. Really nice to see you. Uh, I'm really I'm going to enjoy this, I'm sure. And uh, it's, it's amazing that you're in South Africa, one hour difference, and we're talking now. It's brilliant. That's oh, lovely. And, and Hesham, I mean, there's so much to chat about. Kicking it off, I mean, you are the president of the European Association of Facial Plastic Surgery. I mean, you, you're at the top of your game. You've, you've done, you did your PhD very recently. Um, and you are, you're a world teacher, especially on anatomy and on various parts of facial plastics. But I want us to dial this back right to the start. My first question yeah. is, why did you want to become a doctor? It's a funny, it's a funny thing because when I was young, I actually never wanted to be a doctor until suddenly I changed my mind. I wanted to be an engineer, but then I saw a friend of the family who was, uh, um, a doctor and he was in the medical school final year. And I just really liked the idea. I was talking about what he's doing and anatomy and studying this and that. So that's brilliant and seeing patients and helping them. So I changed my mind in the last minute and then went to medical school and I never looked back. I'm really happy. I think I'm really lucky and we're all lucky to be doing the job that we love. So that was it. Uh, later on, if you want me to tell you about how I specialize as well. Yes, please. Because how, how I work doing what you do now. Yeah. So I went to medical school in Cairo, so because I'm from Egypt originally, and uh, I was doing various things, and I liked surgery in a way, but I didn't know which ones. But as you young person, you think, yeah, cardiac surgery, heart surgery, I love this. He's good, you're saving lives, and I really like that. I'm thinking this was one to specialize in. In the back of my mind, somehow, the attachment I enjoyed most was the ENT. I didn't think about it that way, but I remember that I enjoyed it a lot. And then when my family moved to England later on, so we all came after medical school, I came here deciding to do a training in cardiothoracic surgery. And I met uh, a friend of the family who was a cardiothoracic and another friend of the family was an ENT. I liked the idea of ENT, you do a lot of surgery, but you're not really, uh, you wake up all at night when you're older and patients, emergency, emergency. But I also liked the idea of cardiothoracic. So I visited both. When I visited cardiothoracics, they were a bit stressed and angry and stuff like that. When I visited ENT, they were relaxed and joking. Oh, I like these people. Yeah, yeah. I like their personalities. I also, I like the surgery. And that was it. They decided that then. Wow. Yeah, and I did my training uh, in England. I started uh, in the north. I was working in Nottingham, Scotland, and down to England, uh, to London in the end. Uh, and then facial plastics. What happened is I was very lucky. I, I wanted to be a sinus surgeon. And I was really fascinated by sinus surgery, endoscopic surgery, but nose surgery from the beginning. And I was lucky to work with people who did a lot of nose. But until I ended up working with Ian McCarr and Tony Ball later on, and then I thought, oh my, that's rhinoplasty is the best thing in the world. Yes. I really loved it. And that was it. I specialized in rhinoplasty and sinus surgery. 
and kept going. And um, I kept, you know, I kept doing it. And for years, I did actually my board examination later, not PhD. I did my board examination for European Academy in 2017. Some stage, I thought, mm, I need to do something new. <laughs> I'm just doing the same. Yeah. So I studied for the exam in my old age, and I did it, which was really nice. I really enjoyed it. But Hisham, that's uh, great. I mean, you, you right. also got the best marks in the exam in your old age. Yeah. Eh? yeah. <laughs> but I think because I enjoyed reading it. And this is what I'm trying to tell my students nowadays. If you do an exam, it is a stressful thing. But if you look at it from a perspective and enjoying what you're studying, it probably get better. Because this is, I was reading for fun. I, I had all the books and I go home every day. I'm really busy working every day, unusual, as usual. I didn't do anything different. But I go, I say, I'm going to read a chapter today. So I just read a chapter. Oh, that's nice. I like this. So I enjoyed it. And I think that's how I actually managed to get that high mark, which is, it's nice, you know. That's great. And I, I really love that idea that I've done it and got the mark as well. Why not? No, well, congratulations. Yeah. So for the listeners out there, I mean, it's so inspiring for yeah. hearing someone from the African continent who did medicine and then goes yeah. to Europe and then you go and specialize yeah. and then you super specialize in facial plastic surgery. So within Africa, we don't really know what facial plastic surgery is. So for the African listeners, can you maybe shed a bit of light yeah. on how you become a facial plastic surgeon? Yeah, I think it's a brilliant question, Cameron. I think it's very important that this catches up in Africa because facial plastic surgery starts as reconstructive surgery anyway. And it was from the time of the World War uh, when uh, Richard Gillis, who was a famous plastic surgeon in the UK, or ENT surgeon actually, started reconstructions, uh, reconstructing wounds and so on in the face and in the nose by doing flaps and so on. And it caught up from there that gradually people started thinking about aesthetic and cosmetic surgery and so on. But a big part of facial plastic surgery is reconstruction. And it's very important to catch up with this in Africa and to start you work in reconstruction, you work in the basal cell carcinomas of the face, the nose, and learn how to do flaps and so on. And you also, by working in the nose, you learn how to do septoplasty for airway uh, breathing and so on. And from that, you can work on the rest of the nose. And part of it becomes cosmetic part and part aesthetic. And they both intermingle, and they both overlap in them because function of the nose will overlap with the aesthetic or the shape or cosmetic of the nose. And you start from then, and it's nice to specialize in the whole face if you can, but if you really want to super specialize, you specialize in one area like I've done with the nose. Mm. In the beginning, by the way, I did everything. But then I just, from the, like from the start, I said to you, I just love the nose. And then I find myself gradually just doing more and more noses only, then stop doing everything else. So, uh, and I think, yeah, sorry, yeah. So when you're not doing uh, noses, what do you fill your day yeah. with? Uh, I, the, the things I enjoy, which is, I'm not been doing them that much because of COVID, is traveling. And as you know me, you see me in every country you go to. So normally I've been like in 20 countries a year. Part of it work, part is holidays. So I haven't done that. I love swimming a, a lot. So I used to swim in the pool like three times a week or so. And for COVID time, I couldn't do it because everything was yeah. closed for ages. Now it's reopening. I, I love music, listening to music, watching movies. I love playing the guitar, which I haven't done enough, but I used to do it so much when I was younger. You get busy, but you know, I'm doing it, but not as much. So nowadays, a bit of this, a bit of that, but not the traveling though. But, but Hesham, I think, yeah, which, I think you might be underplaying a bit here. I think this amount of work you put in being the president of the European yeah. Association is massive. Just for the people out there, both the people who might not necessarily 
yet be members, but also the guys who are thinking, yeah. hey, I could be the president. Just give us a little window yeah. of what your day is like normally in terms of how much effort you're putting in for this volunteer job that you're in. Yeah, obviously you do it because you like doing it. It is a lot of work. So the academy has members from all over Europe, but also members from abroad as well, because we do actually encourage people from other continents to join. So we have people from Africa, especially North Africa, from Egypt mainly, and we have people from South America and the United States and so on. So there's 1,100 members or so. So there's always somebody asking questions, which goes to the secretary that they asked me. So every day there's a lot of emails about various things between me, between the board members, or our administrative uh, 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 secretaries and the, uh, the administrators as well, and the website and so on, we have to organize the teaching. So, for example, we have the annual meeting, which you, are, you start organizing this a year in advance at least. So there's almost daily things where the organizers and so on, like now is the current president of the meeting in, in Nice, is Yves Saban, we're always in contact. But also the webinars that we've been doing mm -hmm. since the uh, pandemic. And this is really daily work because you have to organize with the speakers. You know yourself, you're doing the same, uh, the connections, the subjects, and, and so on. Within the academy itself, there are elections, for example, for the board, which we started organizing them. We're encouraging people to come, come forward and put their names on. I want diversity, I'm encouraging everybody from everywhere, women and men, and, you know, and so on, contacting people, please go for election, so on. Things like this. It's a daily part of your work. How many hours a day? I don't know, but it's variable, but there's always something. It's always in your thinking that mm. this academy is something you have to deal with. It's enjoyable, uh, you know, Cameron. It's actually, and you learn from it and you make friends. Mm. You make so many friends. That's the brilliant thing about it. You meet so many people from all over the world, not just Europe. And you learn from, from teaching, from people teaching and you teach, and you, you teach, uh, you, you intermingle with them and you interchange knowledge and so on. Mm. So, to become president, yeah, uh, I didn't think I would be president, but then I, I, I wanted to do it later on when I was thinking maybe I could do something if you feel that you can help. And obviously you get encouraged. People will tell you, yeah, maybe you should go for it. You reach a certain level. Like you've been working the, in that field for a long time. Uh, you've shown that you're presenting all the time. You're teaching everywhere. You've contributed in various things. I was the president of the British Society uh, as well anyway, official plastic, which is similar to a smaller one in the UK. And then you get nominated and you get voted and you realize you become very busy. Right. But it's two years and two years of productive work. And by the way, I actually finished in September. So two years have gone by very quickly. Wow. Uh, uh, but I feel that I've done a lot of nice things. Uh, I, I benefit from it and the Academy hopefully has. Yeah. And we continue. We continue the same. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, you know, every year I make a point of getting to the meeting. I just love being there around all the other people and, they have become yeah. such good friends yeah. and nice people. So you see, Al Faisal's yeah. already had his talk. So now it's your chance. You can say something about yeah. Faisal that you found quite amusing in, in the meetings with him. Because Faisal's such a, I mean, he's now the immediate past president, but he's, he's always yeah. got a few jokes up his sleeve. Eh? Yeah, Faisal is amazing. I mean, we started sort of like a year after him. Amazing how long we've known each other. But how do we know each other? Through the academy. How do I know you? Through the academy, through the meetings, yeah? So I was, we, we started maybe in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah, Father is always having fun, teasing everybody, uh, winding everybody up. And we've worked together 
over these years, I don't think we missed a year of the meetings from the academy or other things. Uh, but you know, having father with us is just fun because we uh, we have these board meetings every maybe three four weeks, and it's just laughing. <laughs> we always laughing, wanting right. every 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 other up and stuff like that. It's a friendship, you know, yeah. and I think just a lot for the academy. He's very enthusiastic. He pushes. He's always working hard for the academy as well. Uh, you know, we go to his meeting in Turkey. We come to the meetings here and so on. It's been great. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. He's the funniest one, I think. <laughs> and he's the one who the tricks. Okay. So, so <laughs> Hitchin, before, I, I want to start asking a little bit more technical kind of questions. Is Teaching yeah. is a big passion of yours. So what is yeah. it that you like teaching about rhinoplasty? And what do you think for the listeners who kind of possibly at the start of their careers is the most important skill to kind of master within rhinoplasty? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I think you start with a good analysis of the patient themselves and you look at that, you learn the anatomy really well, the anatomy of the nose, and uh, you basically learn how to analyze the patient. This, this is my favorite lecture. I, I'm always giving it. Analysis for rhinoplasty, how to actually analyze the patient themselves, their desires, are they realistic about what they want, and then how to realize the deformities of the nose. I think that's a big start, and it's very important to actually master this. And then you'll think about the deformity step by step. I divide the nose into thirds, so I think about everyone separately, and how to actually think about repairing this. And then think of a good plan, write the plan, and think about it again and again. Keep looking at the photos again and again. It really needs an obsession, rhinoplasty, and that's how we start. And I give a lecture. Uh, it's called uh, Tips About How to Become a Rhinoplasty Surgeon. And I say become obsessive first. Yeah. Keep reading. Keep looking at your results again and again and again. Keep thinking about it. And you just have to love it passionately. Otherwise, you don't really get obsessed with it. You're not going to get developed. And learn and keep learning because... You never stop learning with rhinoplasty. You always find something new. And that's a, that's actually the best thing about it. You never get, it gets boring ever. And you continue learning until you retire probably. So I, I think these are my main points. Um, but visit other surgeons as well. Look at what other people do. Interact. Have friends from all over the world like we're doing. Learn from them as well. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I think so. I think these are. So Hisham, yeah. in a way, it's, it's almost like a negative question. What have been the really yeah. hard outcomes for you, like professionally and seeing a result that wasn't really what you felt was up to your standard? And how did you pick yourself up after that and and learn from it as it were? Yeah, that's, uh, that you have to be prepared for this because you'll never, ever get perfect result all the time. And you actually don't usually get perfect result. Is that thing that we say, surgeon is happy and the patient is happy. That's the ideal one. Surgeon is unhappy, but the patient is happy. That's not uncommon. Surgeon is happy, but the patient is unhappy. That's the most difficult one. And rhinoplasty by nature is often unpredictable because healing is very variable and so on. And also patient desires are variable. So my probably worst result is when I, I thought that the result is good, but the patient is unhappy. Because mm. these are the things you can't actually fix. And this happens every now and then. It happened to me when I was uh, less experienced more uh, uh, when I was younger, when I started. Because you don't understand the patient's expectations that well. So if you didn't actually get exactly what the patient wants, and you do something that you think this is what the patient would be happy with, 
and you got the result, but the patient didn't think this is what they wanted. Then this is the, this is the lack of experience in a way, and it's all about analysis. So that this would be my worst result. And I remember this patient; she's young, and uh, I didn't have operation. I thought this is the best result I've ever had, but she was never happy, and she expected something completely different because she was imagining yeah. she can have somebody else's, nose, which is obviously not realistic. Mm. So I've learned from this now, but you, you can't say that even with your spinners and everything, you're always going to get the perfect result. No. So we have to be prepared for this, and you have to actually be ready and you learn what to do about it and how to explain to the patient. And if there's any need for revision, you'll be able to do it or always have a second opinion available with somebody else's experience to ask them to see the patient and so on. Mm. Even when you're very experienced, you do that as well. Sure. So, yeah, so you, it's expectations. So okay. that's the main point. Okay, so step aside for a moment here. If for the, the, the patients, the potential patients who haven't yet been operated, people who have been operated listening to the podcast. What are for some of your really important messages you try and bring across to them um, around this topic of rhinoplasty? Yeah, I think the, for the patient themselves, uh, they should be uh, prepared uh, to look, to think about it enough before you see a surgeon. Think what exactly they don't like and think is it realistic or not. Obviously, this will, the surgeon will explain to them. Do some research before you see the surgeon. So if your friends had some surgery by somebody and they're happy, go and see that person or another doctor advises you. Uh, when you see the surgeon, just spend time, enough time explaining and listen to the surgeon and ask, make sure that they listen to you properly. So exactly know what they, they understand exactly what you want and they, they can tell you if this is possible to do or not. And don't expect that you can actually get somebody else's nose, for example. That's a, I think this is the commonest thing I see from people. They bring me photographs of models of other, other actors and, and actors and so on. Think they can have exactly their nose, which is realistically not possible because the skin is different, the cartilage is different, and so on. Mm. So it's a dialogue between the surgeon and the patient, and spend enough time discussing it, and don't don't actually go for the operation until you're really sure that you're ready for it and understand what you expect. Mm. Mm. So I think these are the main points for the patients. Really. And and what are some yeah. of the funniest things that's happened between you and your patients? I, I had, yeah, I had a couple of times, yeah. So the patient comes to me and it's coming from a different country, yeah. And then once I write a plus T and, and then I, I'm explaining it. So, okay, okay. Yeah. But one second. Then she opens the back and brings this folder. And then it's got pictures and diagrams and arrows, how I should do it. So explaining to me step by step. How was she do rhinoplasty for her? <laughs> yeah, so she looked in the internet and checking what the techniques with the tiny details of techniques. Oh, okay. How did you get this from? I've been researching this for a year. Okay, but I don't think this is what I should do for you, no, because that wouldn't work. No, no, it worked. I, I want this. <laughs> okay, I don't think so. So I think that was, in a way, it's funny, but in a way, also, it's a bit unexpected. Yeah, yeah. And I think if the person get obsessed to that degree, then maybe you should actually not do that operation yeah. for them. They need to understand that whatever it is, the surgeon will probably know a bit more. So this happened to me once, and that was very interesting. The patient, poor, poor patient, traveled all the way from a different country. I didn't realize the research that they want that technique specifically, and they followed from the internet. So that was probably the funniest or the strangest one. Wow. 
that's that's uh, yeah. wow that's quite something eh? um i'd love to now delve into the whole world of social media because it's such a like a poison chalice yeah. that we can drink there because on the one hand it's oh. a really good tool it can help for education etc but yeah it can be abused as well eh? what are some of your thoughts around social media nowadays uh, you know, I'm from a different generation. I'm older than you. So at my time, there was no social media. So interestingly, like my bosses, my mentors, had nothing to do with the internet. They didn't know what it is, nothing at all. So when I started, uh, people kept saying, you have to have a website. I said, no, no, what's that for? And so I didn't actually have a website for a couple of years, two to three years after I started. And then later on, proper social media came with Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and everything else. And again, I was reluctant joining. But in a way, it has a lot of good points, but also a lot of negative points. So I think it's nice to have presence. Uh, your colleagues see you. That's one thing. Patients are aware of you as well. But maybe can be abused because people can put anything. I mean, you never know. It's like there's no control in this. Mm. Uh, I, so I had a patient recently uh, who went and had surgery uh, by a surgeon because he had a lot of followers on Instagram. So she judged the skill of the surgeon because of the number of the followers. She wasn't happy. I mean, to be honest, the expectations were too much anyway. And I say, so why do you think the surgeon will, the best surgeon will have the top followers? I said, everybody knows that. I said, yeah, but you know, like some surgeons are not even on Instagram. Uh, so it just is like a, it's, it has two, two points here. Yes, maybe people with lots of followers are good as well, but maybe not. You, ne you never know mm -hmm. because there's no control. But I think it's nice to be on Instagram and show some, advertise the meeting, show uh, teaching things, stuff like that. Show you where you are, show your clinic, stuff like this. But we have to have a balance. Yeah. I don't know how you get that balance. Uh, we are in a time that we don't know yet because we're sort of still in the beginning of that social media thing in the first five or six years of it's becoming a big thing. So I don't know yet, but it, to like to answer your question, the end of the question, the majority of my patients come through word of mouth, yes. not from uh, through social media or online. And I think in the end probably ends up, this is the best way, maybe, or maybe it's a different generation thing. We, we still have to wait and see. Yeah. You know, you, you can, yeah. you can buy followers, but you can't buy experience. I like that one. That's a good one. I like. I'm gonna say that. Can I borrow it from you? You know what? One of my favorite lines was when Rod Rorick said to me once. He said, "Hey Cam, everyone's world famous on their own website." <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's dangerous, eh? I like. That. Okay. So, yeah, what are some cool. of the biggest pitfalls yeah. in rhinoplasty? Uh, I, I think, as I said, biggest pitfalls that can be unpredictable, really, sometimes. And uh, you can do the best, you can get the best results most of the time anyway. And sometimes you think, I'm going to get the results here. But for whatever reason, the healing was, was not as you expected. So you get a result that you, you'd be surprised with. So that's what it is with rhinoplasty. It's not like anything else. It's not one plus one equal to all the time. That's what it is. And that is a pitfall of rhinoplasty. That's why I have to explain to the patient there's always a chance of revision. You have to understand that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the flavor of the month, or should I say the flavor of the year at the moment, is uh, preservation rhinoplasty. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, I know. We speak about it almost every podcast because it's something that's happened yeah. that's resurfaced after 100 years. In your, yeah. so on two sides here, the one is just some thoughts from your side about it, but actually then digging down to your practice. How does it influence your practice? Are you using it? I'd love to know a little bit more because a lot of people seem to be talking about it and not as many people actually doing it. Yeah, I, I come from a school of structural rhinoplasty, which I developed uh, over from my training uh, in London initially and then Amsterdam uh, in my fellowship, and then in America by visiting various surgeons. And during that time, I was never exposed to those of preservation rhinoplasty. I heard of it, and I heard from people that they did it before, but they found that they find more control about the standard techniques, and they continue with that. So I'd never tried it initially, but then there are good surgeons who adopted it. Yeah. And they did it in a certain percentage of uh, patients in Europe, especially in South America and Brazil. And they've done it for years and, uh, and they got good results. So I think it's a technique which is good. And if it's part of your armamentarium for certain patients, yes, why not? But it's not the only technique and it's, and it's not the, it's not a technique that's suitable for every patient and every deformity. If you do it, it's good. If you want to learn it, it's good. But you just have to learn it from a person who does it a lot to someone watches them a lot. I think there's a bit of a hype around preservation now because there's a lot talking about it. And it's natural with surgery. It's always something that comes or reserves every few years and it calms down again. So I think currently uh, there's a lot of talk about it. People are interested in it. But the danger is that the younger generation would think this is the only technique. So I've had a, a young surgeon recently saying to me, showing to me a patient uh, photographs. So I'm going to do this and that. I'll do it preservation. I said, okay, uh, have you done it before? I said, no. I said, have you seen it before? I said, no. I said, why you want to do it then? Uh, I said, they talk about it a lot. I said, but you've been doing the other technique, haven't you? He said, yeah. Don't you think there's something that you're experiencing you should do it now? And if you want to learn preservation, just watch the surgeon first and learn it gradually. I said, oh, okay then. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we worry about. But you know, it's a nice technique and I, I'm fine with it. People doing it if they are experiencing it or they learn it from experience. Personally, I don't do it. Uh, I've tried it before some years ago. I liked it, but it took me longer than the standard technique, which I've been doing for many, many years. So I just continue to do the techniques that are getting good results in my hands. Uh, so as a final word regarding this, I think it's good to learn these things to be aware of them. But always remember, there's so many different techniques uh, and every technique has its indications and it has certain indications that can be used for. But you learn it from the people who have a lot of experience doing it. Okay, so Hesham, tell me about research. I mean, you've published a lot of papers. Um, I want to know more about yeah. it. It fascinates me that you turn out surgeries, you turn out uh, like administrative positions you teaching and now you also write papers. How do you balance all of this? And tell me a bit more about the papers you've enjoyed the most. Sometimes I don't know, camera. I sleep little sometimes, but I love it. And it's another, it's another thing. If you like it, yes, you do it. So when I, in the beginning of my training, uh, I remember they, uh, they, my, the registrar, I was just like the SHO, I'm really the most junior. Uh, we saw, uh, something rare. Uh, like unusual ulceration in the mouth, said to me, do you want to write a case report? I said, what's that? 
said, this is like research. Go, uh, look it up. If somebody presented with this before, then it's not that rare. If it's, if it's not, then you can write a case report. He said, and we looked at the literature, da, 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 da. That sounds nice. So I went and did that and wrote that paper. I sent it to the journal and they accepted it. And I was so happy. I thought, oh my God, I'm an author now. That is amazing. You know, and I got so excited. I said, I want to do more of this. And I, I enjoyed the research bit itself. When you go and read things and you learn from them. And then from then I just kept going. And, uh, every now and then was something, you get, get an idea, you do it. And then work collaboration. And then there's clever people in medicine. They know all these things. So when you work as surgeons, obviously we hand techniques, surgery and stuff. But because I work in the sinus surgery as well and the rhinology and allergy. So I worked with the allergists and physicians and they come with all these great ideas. So we did collaborative research with them. So we've always been, always been publishing, writing papers and so on. And somehow I sometimes spend the night just on my laptop doing things and I get told by my wife, come on, you can say after you work in this 1 a.m., you know, but I'm enjoying it. And so. Yeah, we publish all the time and we enjoy it. And it's always nice when you see it in print. It's great. And then you got lots of people writing to you because they learned something from it. It's fun and uh, does take a lot of time, but it actually pays off in the end. That's great, eh? Um, it- Most of my research is, uh, sorry, yeah, so my research is either on rhinoplasty or sinus surgery. That's great. That's nothing else. That's great. So, Hisham, I mean, this has been such a scintillating half an hour of hearing what you want to say. I, on behalf of the listeners, I'm pretty sure these, the people, and we've been out in more than 60 countries around the world on the on this rhinoplasty podcast. How okay. do potential facial plastic surgeons or rhinoplasty surgeons get hold of you or try and apply to do a fellowship and get further training? I'm speaking especially for people who are listening who are from countries that they might not yet have fellowships in there. So there's, there are two ways for fellowships. The, my own fellowship is on the Royal College of Surgeons website. So if anybody wants to look it up, just go to the Royal College of Surgeons of England and put a rhinology fellowship. It will appear. My name will appear. There's only two fellowships there. So they can actually email me through that. It's there, the email the address and everything. Uh, but European Academy runs two fellowships now. We've created this recently me and my board, the International Fellowship. So International Fellowship for anybody outside Europe to apply for. Uh, and that you apply through the European Academy website. You just go to the website and look at fellowship and you find the application and everything. So people can actually apply to fellowships in Europe for facial plastics uh, through the European Academy uh, website. For the Europeans, the European Fellowship as well, which is similar anyway then. So there's that. So there are three ways of things. Um, People always visit me as well. I've always had visitors for months or two. It's like a mini short, short observership fellowship. And that was before COVID. Nowadays, we don't have anybody. Mm-hmm. But visiting is also a good thing. I did that one in my training. I visited centers in the States. And you learn a lot from this. Well, short visit, you watch various sessions. So people can visit me all the time. You contact me through my email as well. Mm-hmm. And I can, I'm always accepting people in my private practice and in the university or hospital as well. And just to watch rhinoplasty, lots of rhinoplasty. That's great. So there's so many different ways. Yeah. So I'm happy to see people from anywhere, especially from Africa. And uh, we'll be seeing you in person in Nice um, in September at the, the society's annual meeting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I look forward to yeah. So Can't wait. So Not too long. One, one last question. In terms of COVID's effect on, on 
both academy and your practice and things. How, how are things looking at the moment over in the UK? We're getting better now because uh, for a long time, especially in the beginning, we stopped operating for about three and a half months, four months. Um, but from like end of July last year, we restarted. Until then, we had a second lockdown and a third lockdown. So every time we have a lockdown, we continue to do surgery, but only do things that are essential. So we stopped rhinoplasty, for example, every every few months we did. But we continued with emergency and sinus surgery and so on. But now, from from April, maybe from March, actually, we're normal. We're working as normal. We're doing the clinics. The majority of patients come face-to-face, but we still have, from the time of COVID, the phone clinics, and video clinics, which we're doing, we didn't do before, doing some for the follow-ups. But new patients, we see them as normal. We're operating every week as normal. There's no difference now. And interestingly, we probably have more rhinoplasty patients than before. A lot of patients who've been working from home thought it's a good chance to go for the surgery. So I think that's the reason, really. So I have more rhinoplasty patients nowadays. Sure. Uh, Definitely at least two per week more than normal. Wow, that's great. Well, from... uh... From the listeners around the world, I think um, we we you know just say thank you so much, and uh, obviously a shout out to Suta guys. If anyone wants to find out about this radio frequency ablation, just uh, direct message me. I'll send you the details. Um, but Hesham, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for inspiration. Um, obviously, I'm waving the flag being an African as well. But uh, yeah, it's just great to see how you've succeeded in your life and how humble you are about it, and uh, how. This teaching passion, this is just what I love about rhinoplasty is we don't really have many egos around floating around the world. The guys who, it's just wonderful. So really, on behalf of all of us listeners around the world, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. You're very welcome and look forward to see you soon.